This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, long-form, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Help support Deep Color during our first-ever fall-winter fundraiser. We are producing and selling a limited number of t-shirts featuring artwork by Episode 38 contributor Maya Ruth Lee. The shirt features an image of Maya's Labyrinth Steel Glyph Chart, which was included in the 2019 Whitney Biennial. The image holds a wonderful range of visual information, from poetic text to sharp graphics and photos of Maya's sculptures. This classic fit unisex shirt is 100% cotton, sustainably made and printed at Kingsland Printing in Brooklyn. All proceeds will go towards offsetting deep color production costs and ensure excellent future programming. To see the shirt in order, visit the shop page at deepcolorpodcast.com. Maya and I are really excited about this collaboration. We hope that you'll show support by placing an order today. This episode profiles Jenny G. Young Lee. Jenny makes ceramic sculpture, vessels, totem-like objects, and wall works that combine assemblage, drawing, and painting. Some works resemble off-kilter figures and busts, or things that might operate like a mask. More recent pieces lean into abstract painting and feel like an archive of wonderfully arranged material experiments. A playful touch and luscious layers of glazing act as through lines through her forms, nudging viewers to consider the exchanges between object and surface. The work is incredibly tactile and thoughtful and weaves together ideas related to personal history, otherness, and her experience as an immigrant. We recorded this conversation at Martos Gallery, which is located in Manhattan's Chinatown neighborhood. You know, on the way over here, I was thinking about my, the, like, my first time playing with clay mm-hmm. as a kid and also playing with clay with my children and thinking about the first forms that we make when we're young. I feel like it's either like a snake form or maybe a ball, like a sphere, mm-hmm. but is a pot or a vessel, like a pinch pot, kind of a common thing to make the first time you get your hands on clay. Do you remember the first thing you made with clay when you were a kid? Yes, totally. Um, the first thing I made was my mom's face. And she, we were living in New York, in Manhattan, and it was the late 70s, and she brought me to a ceramic studio, and that was the first thing I made. So when, later on, I uh, returned to clay, after I came back from a long hiatus of not making work, any type of work, um, I just started with clay, and I started making her face again. Mm -hmm. So it was just like an easy entry point into just do what you know. Right. A face. A face. And is it like, I'm trying to imagine a, a young Jenny, like pushing in that, the eye indentation and using your nail to like carve out some sort of eyebrow, like what type of face? It I was, okay, wondering. so it was an oval, kind of like a pizza that you make, a personal pie, uh-huh. and the cheeks were made out of another piece of uh, a spear, like kind of the way that you're telling, like rolling it on the table and then squishing it and then putting that on to make the cheeks protrude out a little bit and you know i've made a few masks that way and i have a korean friend that says that's actually very korean huh so i was like oh i'm channeling something from 
like, uh, you know, from the motherland where, where I was born, yeah, but yeah, I didn't yeah. even know it. Yeah. So it sounds like a flat 2D, like pizza pie yeah. that you're building an elevation on the cheeks and stuff as opposed to like the round. Right. Okay. Right. And I might've made, I might've added some hair. Um, you know, perms were really big back then. My mom has had a perm for decades, so it might've been curly hair yeah. as well. Yeah. I can sort of picture it. Uh, yeah. The other thing I, th I feel like I did and continue to do because of it's so physically satisfying is just grabbing a ball of clay and squeezing mm -hmm. and making that kind of like interior shape of the fist. Right. It's like that grip form. I feel like that's also something that right. it's young kind of people like, do. Like a kind of like a stress ball, right? Yeah, they yeah. create these like marketed things to like uh, kind of emulate the feeling of squishing clay into your hands. And a lot of these panels, we're at Marto's Gallery right now, and a lot of these panels actually have um, clay. Like, uh, I would formulate different clays, and I would squish them in my hands. Only because, yeah, it's a great stress reliever, and there's something wonderful about your, uh, your fingerprints being squished in there, especially if you have a little bit of a nail, and it yeah. goes inside the nail. It's very... Uh, it just feels good. It's yeah, ther yeah, yeah. therapeutic. And you're also leaving a record of yourself in this stuff, right. right? There's there's so much of your probably literal DNA. Totally. Through through like fingerprints and hair and nail prints and you yeah, know. my fingerprints are yeah. all over yeah. this. So if it's I great. do if I do do a crime, <laughs> they know where to find me. They have a basis here. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting because a long time ago there was a time like when I was a little bit more macabre, that um, I was really into forensic pathology, pathology and was reading books about forensic pathologists. So um, it's kind of interesting that there's like kind of a correlation to that. Yeah, for sure. So before we jump into talking about the work that you've been making the past couple of years, I wanna, I wanna uh, touch on your journey west somewhat recently mm. for graduate school, correct? Because when we first met, you were living here mm -hmm. in New York. Um, and then all of a sudden, you're like, I'm going west for graduate school. Right. Can it was originally a residency. A residency. Yeah. Okay. Because I first saw yeah. it. Yeah. I saw the pots of Ruby Neri online, and they're huge and magnificent. And I was like, where in the world does somebody fire pots that large? And I fell down a rabbit hole on uh, social media, and I saw that she was firing them at this place in Cal State Long Beach, California. Um, at, uh, at the time, it didn't have the name, but it's called, now called Center for Contemporary Ceramics. So um, literally, like that week, I looked, tried to look on the website to see if they would list anything about the residency, but there wasn't. And a week later, they posted something like, looking for artists to come apply. So I applied, well, before I applied, I was like, I don't want to go to California. This is crazy. I'm like all set up in New York. I finally live in an apartment I like. My studio is walking distance, so I don't have to take the train. But um, I asked my boyfriend, Graham, who's an artist as well, Graham Collins, and uh, I was like, would you want to go to California? And um, he's like, yeah, sure, why not? I'm like, really? <laughs> Are you sure? Were you hoping that he'd be like, no, I don't want to go? Yeah, kind of, <laughs> you know, just to make it like... Uh, cement cement my you know uh, thoughts that might it might not work out like why the hell would I want to go back to California I went there a long time ago but it didn't work out so um, so I applied and then I got in so that became the residency that and it was supposed to be originally I was like I'm only gonna be there for six months there's no way I could be there any longer I have to come back to New York um, but 
it actually, as soon as I got there and I felt the breeze and then I saw the, the flowers and then I saw, I just, like my shoulders start to relax and then I saw the kilns and then I met Tony Marsh who's the head of the department there at the time and he, he runs the residency now and just like meeting Anna Sue Hoy and just like, you know, just all of a sudden submerged there. I was like, I'm staying here a year. There's yeah. no way. Is this, is this the LA area, Los Angeles? This is Where Long is this? Beach. Long Beach. So it's okay. LA County, but it's about an hour away from say like the east side. Right, right. And did this residency kind of unfold into the graduate school Well, what experience? happened was, yes, I was there for a year and then Tony Marsh said, do you want to do grad school here? And I was like, um, sure, why not? I thought it would be a way for me to keep using the kilns and continue my, my residency. I didn't really think about like how, it wasn't that hard, but I didn't think of like really what grad school was because I never even thought about going to grad school, to tell you the truth. But then I was like, you know what? I wanna read, I wanna, I wanna write papers and do footnotes and you know, I, I wanna study. I said yes, and then that turned, it's a three year program. But I did it in two years because I was like, am I going to stay in Long Beach forever? This is crazy. Right. So you compressed three years into two. Mm -hmm. That's turbo. Turbo, yes. <laughs> totally. Turbo. And then, I, like I was saying before, I got this really horrible rash from a, a resin that I was using. So it was like that mixed with grad school stress. My face and my arms, they kind of blew up. Yeah. In a rash. It started falling apart. Yes, totally. So, you know. I feel like so you, you were showing your work here in New York. Mm -hmm. People knew about your stuff. It seemed like you had a pretty active exhibition history. And I think it's an interesting choice to sort of push pause in a weird way and go back to school. It's mm -hmm. something I've thought about and tried at different times in my life. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what some of the takeaways were for you? Uh, from the graduate school experience, especially someone that's like already showing their work and mm -hmm. already like working with galleries and things like this. Mm -hmm. What were the takeaways of, of the of the graduate well, school? Anytime I start feeling a little bit entitled or like to, I don't know, whenever I have like problems with like ego, like say sometimes it'd be a visiting artist and I was like, why am I here? Because it seemed like I was on the same level as the visiting artist then I have to quickly switch gears and be like, I'm here to learn, you know? I'm here to use the kilns. I'm here to like figure out the things that I don't know. And God knows I don't know a lot, you know? <laughs> so it's like what I was doing right before I decided to go to grad school, besides doing the residency, was like I was scrolling a lot, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, on yeah. social media, it's like my brain could not hold on to too much information. So I was like, I need to go to grad school in order to learn how to study, how to do research, how to write, how to just like use my brain and put new information in, you know? And when I went to undergrad at the museum school, I was like such a wayward person that like, and I was just a little bit troubled. I could not retain information. I was just like in, more interested in doing, you know, illicit things and um, so I only did studio it was four years of studio so now that I'm older I'm in my 40s I just really love learning and reading and I thought grad school what that's what grad school became for me was a way in order for me to like really stretch the parameters of my brain and um, you know I have a sister that's getting her PhD in Sweden and she tells me repeatedly what she's doing 
like what she's writing about. And I feel like I now understand a little bit more what she's talking about because I went to grad school. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. Do you, do you identify as a ceramic artist? I mean, if we, if we have to use some binary language here to describe the type of artist you are, what are the words that come to mind for you? Um, I, I would say that I am a ceramic artist because I'm so obsessed with the material of ceramics and I'll fall down a lot of rabbit holes studying it. So I don't mind being, I guess, you know, quote unquote, pigeonholed as a ceramic artist. I guess like Sometimes I, I say I'm just a sculptor. Right, because I mean, I just that's the use, other word, like mm-hmm. sculptor or a ceramicist. Mm-hmm. Ceramic, ceramicist. Ceramicist, yeah. yeah. Even though I've seen it written ceram, ceramist. Yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. Um, but people have sometimes like introduced me as like a potter or something, and that's fine too. I mean, my pots are very lopsided, and they um, definitely have my handprint in them, and I'm sure a purist, or if you go to a a craft fair, they will balk at them. But I guess the the closest thing I say, I, I'm just a, I'm a sculptor or someone that paints. Now they say I paint with clay yeah, yeah, because yeah. of this show. And the pieces in my show, the ones that are on the, pa- the that are panels that are on the wall, are definitely I call them paintings. Yeah, yeah, they regi- they're landing like paintings for me as a viewer. Sculptural paintings at that are assemblage paintings. But yeah, the way they're presented for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things I think about when I am in front of your work. Oh yeah, ceramics, form, tactility, materiality, vessels. I feel like vessels are a, re- a reoccurring theme in your work. I think about the figure, uh, you, you know, faces are always popping up in your work. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering who these faces are. Or are they, are they masks? Sometimes they feel like masks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's sometimes, uh, particularly with some of the figurative stuff that you're doing, I go into a sci-fi place, which is, which is really exciting for me as mm. like kind of a sci-fi secret sci-fi nerd in the mm-hmm. background in terms of like this kind of creature like distortion that happens in your faces particularly when you're when you're doing the many layers of glazing that you do um so i think about that but then i'm also thinking about who these figures are and i'm thinking about identity and maybe even otherness or something like this um i think do those do those, do those descriptions work for you would oh, you strike oh, anything from abso- that list absolutely yeah. i think Sci-fi is really interesting because I, don't, I definitely don't know enough about sci-fi, but I think that they kind of touch on um, like psychological type of uh, topics. Like the faces first, of course, was first my mother, which that's also loaded. But then I was working as a, as a casting director years ago, and I had seen a lot of faces, and it was a way for me to interpret some of the child faces that I would see that would smile through these pained and when you say, real quick, when you say casting director, you mean for film? Commercials. Commercials. Yeah, not commercials like and making ads. a cast like a mold. <laughs> no, no. Okay. I was, um, I was working for a friend's company, and um, it was a great job because I, I did a lot of street casting, which is basically I just find, like, you know, beautiful people on the street yeah. via, like, Facebook or whatnot. And, um, but I was working this job with them that was, uh, it was for, I believe, Macy's Christmas sale. And so there was a line of children and they, there was a prop, there was a box and they had to hit it, like shake it. It was for Christmas. Like, yeah, I said, that's Christmas. And, um, they were smiling, but some of those smiles were really fake, you know, and then they had to breathe. And there was this one kid that was like, 
smiling but breathing through it and I was like mortified I was like oh my god what am I making this kid do so um the first show I had at Marta's was no it was sorry Lefebvre et Phil in uh Paris it was Smile Purgatory so then all the masks there became a part of that oh wow but then I did some more masks um at uh this gallery in Brussels called uh Levy Del Val and those I made after I heard a quote from uh, the director, Mike Lee, and he said, because he's an immigrant as well to America, or he was, sorry, and he was like, he had an immigrant's ear, and an immigrant's ear is just something that's very keen. It's like picking up on as many things as possible so you know how to assimilate well into the society. And I was like, oh my God, I totally have that since I was a kid, of just like, how do I blend in seamlessly or try to so people stop making fun of me you know at the mall or whatnot um so then those masks and busts became kind of about that the other thing i feel like i want to mention real quick is your work weaves really wonderfully between this sort of violence and distortion and beauty Mm -hmm. and i think those things are really quite nice in terms of like this figure behind us is you know, kind of leaning, kind of distorted. It has like some classicism to it with the arms sort of knocked off. Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me of like a Roman sculpture or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the face is sort of pushed back, um, but you're kind of combing and, and creating a texture through it. And the, the surface treatment is a whole nother layer um, of painterliness. But there's this is like a nice mix of beauty, but something kind of scary t- as well. For Definitely. Me. Yeah, um, yeah. I named this one No Arms, and it's because it's named after a dance that uh, the late Stanley Love had had choreographed. And Stanley was somebody that I danced for a few years with, and just somebody very extremely special and close to me. And he had this one particular dance called No Arms, and it's when they all folded their arms. And I, when the first time I saw that, I thought it was so hysterical and amazing because it's like, who names a dance No Arms? Stanley does, and it's like it's the way that I always stand, like just arms crossed in front of you. Um, and I thought this piece was, okay, also, he, one of the things that he had in his shows was the spirit party where each person comes out as a different deity on a like, kind of like a um, solid gold, not solid gold, what's the other show? Soul Train? Soul Train, yeah. Oh, okay. The other Soul Train kind of line. And um, he picked Quan, the goddess Kuan Yin for me. So this sculpture has a, a headpiece like Kuan Yin. Yeah, it's kind of top. Looks like a crown or something up there. Headpiece, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, while we're sort of talking about ideas, you know, and and me reading up on the show that we're sitting in right now, there is, you had a first person little blip that you wrote in the press release, mm-hmm. um, which connects to the title of the show, which connects to I think some of the things you're saying about being an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to tell listeners about the name, the title of the show? And, sure. And maybe the, the, this piece right here, which I think references part of that story. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, so the title of the show is called Sizzling Goba and Long Beach. So the first part of the title, Sizzling Goba, is a dish that me and my family, my sister, my mother and my father, when he was still alive, we would go to once a month. And it was a restaurant in Bergenfield, New Jersey. And this grumpy waiter, he was our waiter for years, he would bring, uh, we would order this dish, sizzling goba, which is a really hot cast iron plate with rice, and he brings the rice and the sauce separately, and once he pours it in, it makes an extremely loud noise. 
So as I said before, like the immigrants here are just like trying to like blend in. The noise would embarrass me so much that I would sink in my seat. But the dish was delicious and we continued to buy this um, and eat it. Um, that is somewhat uh, an abstract or a, a vein into this wall of grass that is in the middle of the gallery right now at Martos. Um, to describe it, it is a wall with grass climbing up it and all the different pieces of grass are made in a, in a variety of different techniques and different firing temperatures and atmospheres and clay and glaze. And it is to mimic the lawn that um, was surrounding my house in New Jersey right when my father died. And um, the, uh, my father passed away really suddenly and it's not because, uh, well, no, the cancer was really sudden, but it, we, we were just not told that he was dying because they're Korean and they're just like old school and they don't want to tell anybody anything. So, um, so my mom woke me up, one, woke me and Lila up one morning and was like, your dad's dead, we got to go to the funeral. So we were just like totally in shock. How old were you? I was 15 years old. Oh. Just like teenage angst time, yeah. you know. That's, a, that's, a, that's heavy at any point in life, but it, like right. that, that teenage year. I'm like so pissed, I don't understand. Like the la literally the last time I actually spoke to my dad it was terrible because I rang up a huge phone bill that's when um, do you remember party lines I, I do <laughs> I do I never participated but I I know what they are so I didn't have any friends at school because I was a loner and um, I rang up a really large bill it was $700 on the party line and my dad was in the hospital and he called and he said when I, I'm gonna get home I'm gonna kill you <laughs> and I said fuck you and I hung up the phone and unfortunately that was the last time I spoke to my dad oh man so basically like so he died suddenly and uh, the grass around our house it grew and it grew and grew and because he was the only one that knew how to use a lawn mower in our house he couldn't cut it so then I saw this grass grow and it was so unruly and so crazy and I was like, oh my God, those neighbors, they're gonna look at us and they're gonna think something's wrong with us. I'm already in shock. I was like in shock because it also turned out that my father was having an affair for many years, like, I don't know, he, several years, like a decade and he had a secret family with uh, this other woman. That's a lot of information. <laughs> it's a lot, yeah, totally. So, the, you know, I'm, I'm like worrying, I'm thinking about all that, I'm shocked by that, and then all of a sudden the grass is growing. It's like, can I get a break? No. So, <laughs> so no one's there to cut the grass. And, um, and that grass always stayed with me as like an indication of like not belonging, even though it's like now that I'm older, I'm like, oh my God, there's so many worse things. But it's like, always feeling outside of and like un not being able to control things in life. Yeah. And um, interestingly enough, when I was in grad school, I read this woman, Martha C. Nussbaum. She's a um, philosoph philosopher. F <laughs> I can't even say the word philosopher. <laughs> How do you say the word? I think philosopher. Philosopher, did yeah. I say it right? Yeah, you got Sorry. it, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she was saying how emotions, because I was studying emotions, um, how emotions are like intelligent appraisals of what you're gonna do later on in life. So like emotions are their intelligence. And each emotion that you have, whether it's grief, anger, whatnot, it will be an indication on how you might navigate your life later on. Yeah, you know? that makes sense. Yeah, this, this piece, you know, I'll just, just add on to what you were describing. The wall is actually the, the contour of a house. Mm -hmm. um, so it's got the roof. 
and the little overhang of the roof, but it's two-dimensional, right? It's just one wall. And then you've got all your ceramic grass pieces that are hooking off and curling and pulling towards the viewer. You know, the gravity's kind of frozen in, some, in, in a lot of your work, number one, but like these, these look like they want to wave, mm-hmm. but they're not allowed to because it's fired ceramic, which is really nice. Um, and then the, your, your, your glazing and all the different greens are just so lovely in there. For some reason, I found that I had, the color that I had the most was green in my glazes. I use a lot of commercial glazes. And I was like, oh, this is perfect to be able to use this for the grass to get all the different variations and shades and depths of what grass can be. And um, interestingly enough, yeah, a lot of these ended up looking like snakes. And I thought about snakes in the grass and the sneakiness maybe that my dad was when he was alive. And just, you know, things that now as an adult, I understand more. But at the time, I was completely perplexed, shocked, and like so angry about, you know. Let's talk a little bit about process. You know, at the front, we were talking about how some of these can be defined as paintings. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you walk me through how, how you made some of this show or all of this show? Yeah, sure. Um, a lot of these pieces that you see on these panels, the ceramic pieces actually, they're an accumulation of things that I've gathered over the last three years when I started doing the residency and then into grad school. So for example, I took a, a glaze technology course where we made tons of tests and tested different glazes at cone ten- temperatures. and. Um, so I saved a lot of the glaze tests from that implement and put them. I wanted, some of them were so beautiful that I was like, this should definitely be a part of the work. So I added them and then also different um, slabs that I had rolled over the, over the years and mixing the different clays with them and then ones that had been fired in a process called sagger. And it's when you bury, you make a ceramic box and you fill it with wood ash and then you could put other chemicals in it. It's kind of like a lasagna, put other chemicals in it and then you buried, you bury your glazed ceramic pieces in them, fire to cone 10 reduction, and then you crack it open and then you excavate them. And it's very like, very much like an archeological dig when you take them yeah, out. I mean, That's like sounds, the one right behind me. It sounds like an effort for sure. Yeah. yeah. That, I literally did that like the last, on the last three days and uh, artist Corey, Mahoney helped me do that. Cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, I mean, hearing you talk about these or all the bits and pieces from the past three years through the residency and probably through graduate school, these do feel like an archive. They mm-hmm. feel like collections. They feel like tabletops that have been tilted on the vertical and then stuck to the wall with the vessels that are coming out. Some of them look like cups. Some of them look like pitchers. Some of these things look like tools. Um, they're arranged in a really interesting way. Um, not unlike a collection. I'm just looking at this one right over your shoulder. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's really nice <clears throat> in these is the mix of approach. I mean, I'm seeing ceramic. I'm seeing painting. I'm seeing sculpture. Um, I'm seeing embossing. Um, I'm seeing drawing. Can you talk about how you manage all those different approaches? Because mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think they definitely show up uh, in the, these works for sure. Well, what I wanted to do with um, with like quote unquote pottery and ceramics was I wanted to take things that I make on the wheel and incorporate them onto these panels as to like collapse the boundaries between pottery and uh, you know fine arts. Yeah. So I thought you know this would this would be a really good opportunity to just mix everything together because I do have like a. Um, what do you call it? like a tableware line called glaze moods? Yeah, that yeah, I, I wanted do. to ask you about that. We'll get there. <laughs> so, and you know, it's it's just as much work to make that as much as um, 
the art, the contemporary art as well, but I was like, you know what, I really want to mix those two worlds together. Let's see how it goes. As you see, like the lines that are on the panels that I draw with pencil and uh, colored pencils, I was trying to um, recall when you're bored in class and you're doodling on the, back then, I don't know if they still have them, but wood, wood desks, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and then you could leave a mark. And just when you're doodling when you're on the telephone, and I was like, I want to take that subconsciousness and put that onto the panels as well, and then somehow combine these black, the, the black lines that are made out of clay. Mm -hmm. um, that's a clay called Cassius, and I wanted to make lines out of clay that mimic the lines that are drawn with pencil right. as well. Right. As well as um, all the other test tiles that I glued on there. It's, I forgot the original question. No, I no, got, I no, got, lo fine. I got lost. No, I got no. lost in there. Well, that, maybe that's part of it. It's like, how do how, you know, the, the setup was kind of like, how do we manage all these different approaches? But it right. sounds like what you're describing is they're echoing off each other. Mm -hmm. You're making this sort of automatic, uh, doodle line that we, we do when we're on the phone or trying to zone out. Mm -hmm. And then you're creating like a mimic of it out of clay, which requires a different type of thinking. You're slowing down. You're actually, uh, present while you're making it, right? Because mm -hmm. you're trying to echo that thing. I mean, that sort of psychology uh, back and forth is, sounds like a great exercise in a lot of ways. Well, I think that's the way that I make a lot of my work. You know, it's like, I always wished I could be the type of artist that actually has, has an idea and then like creates a way to make that happen. And for me, when I do that, I end up making nothing because yeah. I'm sitting there thinking or trying to think. That. And then it's like, I'm going around and around in my head and I'm like, oh my God, I hate everything. So then I, everything for me comes out of just doing, just like start, you know? And um, I think the way that I feel when I use clay, and I think this is why it's so seductive, is that I lose my thoughts. You know, like I'm someone that, overly thinks about everything and worries and blah 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 and it's like thinking is the last thing I want to do yeah you know that's my biggest obstacle too yeah it's like the overthinking bit yeah yeah, yeah for and, sure but even though you know now I learned that thinking is can be good and can be helpful because of grad <laughs> school and like thinking is not trying to always kill me yeah. but it's like I, I think that's why some of these pieces there's so much going on and so I like to think that's going underneath the surface of what the first thoughts are that we think of. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, with your glazing, while, while we're on this process section of the conversation, with your glazing, there is sort of a, you know, there's a parallel to how a painter applies paint mm -hmm. to a surface. Um, and, you know, there's like an abex kind of vibe with some, with some of the glazing that you're doing, just like putting down splotches of pigment and then maybe putting a, a um, a different tone that might relate to that first tone. So it's this call, call and response, this reactionary way of working. Can you talk about your glazing? Because I feel like you're, you're, you know, when I when I talk to friends that know your work, or I, I mentioned to a few people, I'm going to talk to Jenny today. Ask ask her about the, the glazing and these like really like intense color um, dialogues that she gets, and mm. where do those come from? Or is it not thinking? You're just kind of picking what's in front of you. I think some of my glazing, hmm, I think it comes from different parts of my life. I worked at a vintage archive for a few years, and we collected clothes that was from the 60s to the 90s, high-end uh, high designer brands, and um, I think some of the colors that were in that archive definitely informed me. 
Um, other things is, okay, so for this show, for example, um, I think what I wanted to do is where the glaze starts and where the paint begins or ends, you can't tell a difference. Yeah. So it's like you look at it and you're wondering, is that paint or is that glaze? And I really um, wanted to dive into that. But to go back on the question, um, it's almost like taking a material and or taking a color and completely pushing it to the point of no return. Like how can I make as many different variations of this green as possible? Completely cover the whole spectrum. So that's like, that to me is a very, um, you know, like something I can do, yeah. you know, because there's a lot of things in my life that I'm like, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so I'll take something that's like piecemeal and be like, okay, let's try to push this to as far as it can go and then move on to the next. And I think that's what I do with glaze yeah. is just taking a blue and how can I cover every aspect of blue and then which blue goes with the which, uh, which uh, shade of green. What does it look like next to each other? Can I combine the two? And doing that with every single color as much as possible yeah. until, um, until exhaustion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like those, those greens and those blues and the range in between them, I'm sort of seeing, what, I mean, you're, it's probably obscured by the, the wall here, but mm -hmm. um, the bloom of green and the, and the bloom of blue that are sort of seeming together. I'm, I'm going to assume mm -hmm. that's a glaze over there. You know, when I see that, I think of your work. Mm. Uh, and then combine that with some of these rose colors and these crimsons and these wines and these, and these bloods and those blooming out across the spectrum. Like that green and that red. Right. And how they, how they like kind of create a storm. I have but, to really limit the amount of time I use red and pink, I yeah, feel like. Because yeah. those are, it's almost too easy, right? They take over? Yeah, and yeah. it's like people, well, including myself, um, you know love those colors and it's like it's an easy like pop or it's an easy like mood changer yeah. and it's like how can i do stuff without completely always using that like uh get out of jail card or something <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know yeah. so that's why with this show i was like i gotta tone down the pink i was gonna say all that said that mm -hmm. pink that i just described which i think historically if you look at the arc of your work is mm -hmm. sort of a through line is absent here, mm -hmm. which is really nice. There's some more neutral, um, and you know, like the, the tone of the panel that you're working on, you're using as a color to rebound on. I'm just looking at this one right here. Mm -hmm. Even the the adhesive, I wanted to- Oh yeah, the magic it, smooth. It looks like peanut butter. Um, right. Or Vaseline or something, which is so luscious and what a great tone and like a color I probably couldn't mix if I tried. That's something that's sort of feels like a new voice. Well, it's a resin that I've been using. It's Magic Smooth. It's a two-part resin. Um, I think the first person that told me was Brie Ruiz. Brie Ruiz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think the person that told her might have been Jesse Greenberg. Okay. But I used it initially for the masks to glue the cleats on the back to hang it. Yeah. And then when I was in grad school, I think it was, I had a class with Stanya Khan. And I think during crit, they were like, why don't you use this resin in the front? Um, of the pieces and I was like yeah whatever maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, but then dirt when I was making this show I was like oh I have this huge panel and why don't I just create use this resin as part of the paint to build up texture and for these different ceramic pieces to be lodged in it as if it's like a lodged memory right um, and then now I'm like I love it it's like yeah it's really strong it's gooey and it's like 
it's not. It's another uh, texture in there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And you could mix acrylic with it. So you can change the color yeah. if you want. Yeah, that's great that's stuff. That's for the next show. Yeah. So is that what you're using to glue, for the vertical pieces, mm -hmm. the painting pieces, we'll, we'll just call them that. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're using to, to adhere the ceramic mm -hmm. forms to the panel? I mean, some are also drill gunned in. Oh yeah, like. some, the, some ceramic pieces have holes yeah. that I've drilled in the green screws that I made for this show, but everything that is you see that's glued on is pretty much glued with Magic Smooth. Yeah. Let's hope that it lasts forever. Yeah, I mean, these are questions we have to keep in the back of our head, right? Is it archival? Right. <laughs> I should have asked them yeah, before yeah. I started making this. Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit about your youth in New Jersey, but if I'm remembering correctly, you were born in Seoul, no? I was born in Seoul, yeah. and I moved here in 77, I believe. Okay. And so I was really young. Um, and then we lived in Manhattan for a little bit. I uh, went to PS41, and then we moved to New Jersey because my parents wanted a better life, and they wanted, you know, suburbia. Mm -hmm. and, a um, driveway and a yard. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then um, and then Paramus Park. Ugh. And then we moved three different towns in New Jersey, and then my father passed away. And then we moved to Rockland County, New York, which is just right over the, the border. But for some reason, that border changed everything. And then I found my people. I found the other goths and punks and like, you know, hung out with them and then got into a lot of trouble and then went to concerts, came down to the city to go to shows and, sure. you know, all that sure. stuff. Um, you know, I was going to ask what your earliest influence was, if you remember, like what introduced you to art. But I guess I want to piggyback that with how did you get into punk? I mean, I've always think that's sort of an interesting oh. story. I guess or it, being goth, you know, this, this sort right, of right. like back then we, we, could, we could call it a subculture. I kind of don't think there's such a thing anymore with the internet. Like we can't. I know everything is it, It's accessible up. now, right? But um, how does a kid from Seoul that immigrated to the States, lived in Manhattan, New Jersey? Mm -hmm. I mean, proximity probably to the city helped with some of these things. But yeah. I think What's definitely what What's happened. <laughs> what happened was once I moved. Okay. Once right after my father passed away, I was already like you know, testing the waters to go towards punk because I was, that's when I started listening to the Sex Pistols. But then after he died, I was like so, uh, you know, like depressed. And as soon as I crossed over to Rockland County, I found other goths. So that's when I started listening to the Smiths. It was like basically finding music that was the same of what's going on inside, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, I started listening to the Smiths, Susie and the Banshees, The Cure. Um, you know, other stuff like that, alien sex fiend, <laughs> uh, Christian death. And then I just related to people that were, uh, I don't know, into that thing suicidal, too. yeah, <laughs> into the dark side. Sure. Um, and then I think what really changed things was uh, listening to Sonic Youth in high school and then the boredoms in college, seeing their shows was, you know, totally mind blowing. Um, and then what happened? And then I started to get into jazz. And then, um, you know, it's so weird. I'm not into, I love music still, but I'm, I was thinking about this. I'm not into music as much as I was when I was in my 30s, 20s yeah. and 30s and yeah. teens. It's just changed, you know? And now I'll listen to the radio. Like, what will I listen to when I make stuff is like either podcasts about true crime, like, like I got obsessed with this one, Root of Evil, which mm -hmm. is about the uh, Black Dahlia mm -hmm. um, and the Hodel family. And then I'll start, a bad habit kind of is watching Netflix while I'm glazing because I'll have so much to glaze that I'm like, I just need 
tons of cold brew and I need to be like, uh, you know, entertained yeah, continuously. Yeah, yeah. So I'll watch, I'll watch just like, you know, things like the deuce. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. So when did making ceramics or, or using clay as something to make objects weave into your younger punk did it was it overlapping with the punk stuff were you making no things? it was like, first when did year that it was first year of museum school in boston okay so i went to i it was 1991 i moved to boston to go to museum school and i was at the time i was like a painter and printmaker but then I found the basement, and that was ceramics. And I took at the museum school. At the museum school, yeah. And I took a throwing class, and mind you, I didn't go to class at all because I couldn't wake up, and I also had uh, I was extremely shy, so I couldn't really talk to people that much. So I didn't go to any class, but you could do this thing where you you sign out a sheet to do overnights. So you could stay at school all night and work. Okay. And it was really cool because when I was doing those overnights in um, ceramics, I would see the artist Ellen Gallagher upstairs. Sure. And she would be in there doing overnights, and we would say hi. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and I just saw her work at the New MoMA. Yeah. And um, it's just amazing. Yeah, out of this world. You know, you make vessels, I th or I feel like the, the, the form of a vessel comes into your work regularly like these small little cups there's like a bigger sort of pitcher mm -hmm. or cylindrical type form coming off of that i know you've uh, you you've made other things that maybe go more upright on a tabletop that operate like a vessel mm -hmm. um and I, I got to thinking about what we put in vessels are, are do you consider your vessels like do they hold something spiritual or emotional could you ever mm -hmm. imagine someone putting something some other object inside of your ceramic vessels or oh, yeah. are they forms uh, is it just a sculptural object well the only time i actually made vessels to have pieces put inside them was when me and graham had a two-person show at the in the viewing room at marlboro gallery and um for that show i purposely made vessels that he then out of wood or bronze would make items to go inside of them mm -hmm. so then we would display them together um, but for the most for the most part, when I make the vessels, I'm not even thinking about flowers. I'm thinking about like um, when I'm throwing on the wheel. A lot of time, my vessels are made of different parts, so I combine yeah. them because I don't throw very tall because m my body hurts. So I throw in pieces and then I combine them together, and then it's just just a sculpture that way. For some reason, I never got as far into thinking, what can I put inside of them? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. almost like I'm okay with just them, except this piece that I did attach onto this panel behind me mm -hmm. that I made purposely to have looking out so that someone could peer in. Yeah, it's almost like a, whatever that thing's called that uh, you look through in a submarine or a telescope oh, or yeah. like an eye hole or something. Yeah, I get that. I thought it would be fun. I have some multiple choice questions oh for you. Uh, and they have to do with, with what might go inside of these vessels. Okay. So if you had to put a liquid in one of your vessels, which would you choose? A, Coors Light, <laughs> B, vampire blood, or C, water from a melted iceberg? Um, I would have to pick Coors Light <laughs> only because one of my best friends in high school, Carrie Ingber, when we were drinking in high school and we were young alcoholics, she her <laughs> beverage of choice was Coors Light. There you go. So we would have goth parties, and she would didn't want anybody drinking her Coors Light. So she would be lugging a case of Coors Light around, and all the older goths would laugh at her. 
Yeah. Because she would never share. <laughs> I was going to say, is Coors Light not the chosen brand of <laughs> the, the not. goth community? Definitely not. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, question two. If you had to put objects in one of your vessels, which would you choose? A, pennies. B, teeth. Or C, love letters. Aww. Um, it's hard to choose between the or teeth. Or D, huh? Skittles. <laughs> Uh, that's very, it's, that makes so much sense because another issue I have, not to make this all about me, but <laughs> I have such bad teeth from eating so much sugar that they're being pulled out one by one, or I grind and they pull themselves out. Um, so I would have to pick teeth, which is caused by Skittles. There you go. Because yeah. I ate a lot of Skittles and uh, sugar daddies. Nice connecting of the answers there. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned earlier at the front of the conversation, uh, you know, the sort of exchange between craft and these contemporary art ideas. Um, and I wanted to kind of uh, bridge back into that mm. topic. You know, I, I sort of think your work transcends scene in a lot of ways, which is a really nice thing about it. But is there is there an itch or do you do you see it in one of these spheres more than another? Is there a battle between the two? You know, I, I think a lot of this is sometimes other people's projections. Mm. But I'm just wondering how you how you sort of navigate that discussion between craft and contemporary art? Or, or mm -hmm. are we at a place where it doesn't matter anymore? I think we're getting, well, I can only speak for myself because I've never gone to, uh, you know, there's an Ensica, there, that's the uh, ceramic conference that happens every okay. year and I would love to go, but I never gone. So I feel like I would be more educated on this topic if I went to go to one of those and then heard the lectures. But um, for me, I'm definitely more in the art side of it and I think it's because of the way that I think or maybe also maybe the discourse that I want to be in sure um, but that said I have a huge respect for the ceramic community because it's so communal and it's a place that I've learned where people eat together and people cook together and they eat on ceramic plates that they've made together and then also there's firings that last week somewhere with an anagama kiln so everybody's hanging out so there's so much a part of the ceramic community. Yeah, it's very collaborative. I mean, you totally. have to stay up like 24, 48 hours firing <laughs> these stove, the, yeah. the kilns. Yeah, it's um, like a rave. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like, I, I'm just like, oh, that's so cool. People like that need each other, that talk to each other, and that talk about, like, even like, I'm sure if I was to go to one of those or go to somewhere where it's much more like pottery based or like say that there was like an imaginary workshop somewhere that was all about like, lids or only about handles or something i could totally i would love to go to one of those yeah. and like learn everything i can about a particular aspect of pottery um i also love that like there's a whole world of people that go mudlarking in in england or so, wherever in the river and harvesting find, the, their own clay yeah oh yeah, yeah harvesting yeah that's amazing too oh, mud is mud is something else sorry I jumped or in no there. no it's okay it's like mudlarking when they go in and they find ceramics from Oh, yesterday, yesterday yeah, yeah, yeah. like a long time sure, ago, okay. and they're able to identify the history of it and everything, you know. Um, so I, I'm just so respectful of, like, everything. I just feel that for me, for my work, um, I think it's just more on the level, or, or just more in... I, I also don't make things, like, well, you know. I make things... Um, the way I make them, and they would, I, they would be laughed at, maybe, <laughs> right. like uh, other places, you know. Right. Like I make, I don't feel that it, I need to perfect a bowl or a, or a teapot or 
or anything because there's already so many out there that are perfect. Right. There, and that there's people, people make. There, there, there's going to be someone better at making that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, I have interests. I'm like, yeah, I can do this, but there's someone that can do it a million times better. Totally. Than me. Yeah. Yeah. I get that for sure. I guess what we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, craft and, and where these ceramic clay objects wind up. You mentioned glaze moods earlier. Let's mm. talk about glaze moods. Oh yeah. Glaze moods. So, I always joked and I called it my diffusion line. That's what they called in fashion because I did work a few years in fashion and um, it was a way for me, I realized with the art, not many people are going to be, that I know are gonna be able to afford it. And um, Glaze Moods was a way to make pieces that were you can use and that you can buy at a lower price point. Right. Um, it's still a little pricey, I think, um, but it does take a long time to make and it takes just as long almost and then effort and then you have you know the ed it has to be edible or like you know you could Safety eat off of it of, yeah, yeah totally so there can't be like you know cracks holes bubbles blah blah you don't want to get food stuck in there and stuff um so that's something i do i generally do it for my friends stores or stores that i really like um but i much more prefer to make the art yeah so it's in the name of us like a little independent company and you yes. make plates yeah plates cups, mugs, mugs cups um but it's something that i want to do more in the future and develop something else with it yeah, you know yeah, yeah. whether it be fabric or whatnot anything um it's just that right now i haven't had time to really dedicate toward it towards it and also working with ceramics it's great to like just take a break and just throw on the wheel and the you know just like not think and go into a nod and just like keep throwing uh, mugs and give them to your friends and then you know everybody's happy yeah yeah I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for projects that go or, or like on the side of a studio practice or something that might bridge back in in some capacity mm -hmm. but it's its own thing and it's a different way of thinking um, I think that's healthy mm -hmm. and um, sounds like that's what glaze, glaze moods is for you maybe mm -hmm. so maybe we could talk about desire and satisfaction um, as it pertains to being an artist and what we're sort of working towards is it uh financial stability is it fame and fortune i guess this was, this is my question where i want to hear from you when mm -hmm. when you're content when you're happy or if you're working towards something bigger mm. um what what what's driving all of this uh, well the thing is i've tried to do many different jobs in my life and i failed at all of them so i only wanted to be an artist and i almost feel like i didn't have a choice because I grew up with my mom that was an artist and she brought me to her art classes and she taught art in college in Korea and it's just the only thing I've really known. Um, and then when I tried to do other things, it was just like, I'm just not good at them. And um, so art is the only thing I can do. It's the only thing that makes me feel right. Like even when I'm not making work, I haven't made a work now in about a month and I've started to get very depressed. Yeah. And I didn't want to admit it. I thought I'm resting my body and whatnot. But it's like, I, I just, I just feel better. It's like an antidepressant when I'm using my hands and I'm being of use and like making stuff. And I'm, I'm not gonna lie. It, life is much easier when you have money, <laughs> because it's like a lot of times I don't have that much money, and it's, it's not easy looking living in this city or living, um, and you know, struggling. So it would be really cool if I could make some money. Yeah. But um. Yeah, I just, I don't know what else, I, and I, you know, now as I get older, like service is important to me, and it's, I have to find a way, uh, I guess teaching is service, you know, helping others, um, 
find their way, but yeah, you had a, there was a school group in here uh, right before we oh, sat yeah. down to record. So I mean, it's it's we, it's it's finding its way in. Totally, yeah. Wide Rainbow was here, and I was giving a tour to uh, to young people of the show. So whenever I'm helping, if I'm making art, I'm helping others. I feel right. I yeah. feel good. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Is there a dream project? Oh. Or what's on the horizon? Is there anything? Um, right now on the horizon, I have a show in April at AF Projects in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, but besides that, moving upstate in about a month, uh, full time and setting up the studio there. And you feel like you're ready for that? The, the country lifestyle? I think I, I mean, luckily it's two and a half hours away. So I could just get in a car and come back here as soon as I lose my mind and it turns into misery or something. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to like set up a studio again where it's my own studio. And I mean, I loved Cal State Long Beach, but it was always somebody was there, but this time it'll be like only me and Graham in the next mm-hmm. building. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, sounds great. Jenny, this has been great to talk to you about your work and sit in your show. I don't always get to sit in galleries. I'm usually in studios doing these, Mm -hmm. but what a treat to be uh, hearing you talk about your work and then look at it around you in this very formal, clean, wonderful installation. Congrats on it. And thank you to Martos for allowing us to record your after hours. and thanks for all your generosity Thank and participating you so in the project. I'm a huge fan and I listen to every episode. So this is like so cool. It's like the, the arty Terry Gross. <laughs> thanks, Jenny. Thank We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Help support and sustain this project by making a donation online at deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings. Be sure to share this project within your community and subscribe and rate in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.